Well, Merry Christmas, Life Fellowship. Good to see you this morning. It's going to be great. It's sunny and 63 day, people. Amen. This is why we live here. I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm like, suckers up there. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 1. Um, you know, Jason and his team do an amazing job of decorating. If you helped out decorating, thank you so much. Um, we are blessed by it. And it, you might not know this, but around all the trees, there are these little music stands that have stories behind a lot of the Christmas carols that we sing. And, and there's something about, I'm a history buff. I love learning the history behind things. And, and this week, I came across the story of the history of Silent Night. And many of you, if you're familiar, come to church, it's one of the most popular Christmas carols, Christmas hymns in, in, in Christendom. And, and when I read the story about it, I was just fascinated by how it all came together. And basically what had happened was there was an assistant pastor by the name of Joseph Moore um, in this little tiny village outside of Salzburg, Austria. So, you know, think of Sound of Music, that's, that's Salzburg, Austria. And um, it's a village outside of there. And so uh, there was a traveling group of actors and actresses that would put together a dramatic presentation of, of the birth of Jesus. And so because the church organ was not working, they found a larger home in town and people would go and they would watch this. And Joseph was just so moved by the play that he decided, I'm going to go for a longer walk after that, during that evening. And he walked up on the hillside and oversaw the, the little town where he pastored. The snow was falling. It was just one of these, these, these Christmas card moments, I guess. But the Spirit of God was just re really working inside of him. And he remembered how he had written a poem two years ago about how the shepherds announced Jesus' birth or how the angels announced uh, Jesus' birth to the shepherds. And so he was just thinking, man, it would be great if we could put this poem to music. And so the next day was Christmas Eve, and they would traditionally have a big Christmas Eve service for the town. And so he goes to the church organist. The church organ doesn't work. He says, listen, I've got this poem. You're going to have to put together, can you put together music for this poem, but you'd have to do it on the guitar. And so within a few hours, uh, it, I believe the guy's name was Franz Gruber. What a great, great German name, Franz Gruber. But Franz Gruber, who was the church organist, put together the music to Silent Night, and they sang it that evening for the very first time. Later, when the repairman for the organ came three months later, uh, the first song that Franz Gruber played on it was Silent Night, and the person repairman realized, man, this is a phenomenal song. He knew some very famous singers, and he took the song to them, and the rest is history as we, so, as we know it. But, but there's something about music that is emotional for us. In fact, if you think about it, songs are the result of, of an experience that drew out, that, that caused some kind of emotion. Every song, whether it's a Christmas song or whether the songs we just hear on the radio today, they're, they're written as a result of heartache or pain or, or desire or love, whatever it might be. But, but songs and music are, are, are artistic expression of emotion and reality. And what we have here in, this morning is a song written out of emotion and reality. You know, it's interesting that we, we have Mary's song here. There's only three women that have, that, that have written scripture, that we have the entire Bible written. There's three women who've actually written scripture, and they all wrote songs. The first woman was Deborah in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 5. She writes a song after this great military victory during the history of the Judges. The second woman to write a song is the woman Hannah. And that's in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah was a barren 
woman. She couldn't have children, and her heart, she just was heartbroken and sad. And finally, she cried out to God. God gave her the gift of a child, and she writes this song as a result of God blessing her. The third woman is Mary. And what's interesting, if, as we read the song, the song of Mary, um, I'll, I'll give you some homework. If you really want to find something interesting, read Hannah's song alongside of Mary's song. There's a lot of similarity, which means Mary was drawing a lot of her ideas from the scriptures. Even how Mary's song begins, it reflects Hannah's song. But, but what we know is that Mary felt something. Mary, there was an emotion in Mary as a, as a result of some reality in her life, and it was the announcement of Jesus the Messiah being born. And, and the reason I think this is so interesting is because I think all of us in here, we have some kind of emotion right now. Like some of you, I mean, the emotion is, I can't wait for tomorrow. It's just the emotion of anticipation, emotion of, I can't wait to give gifts, or I can't wait to see family and friends. Um, some of you might have the emotion of frustration this morning. You know, I didn't, you know, I had to drive 12 hours to be here. Or I, I didn't even want to come to church this morning. She made me, right? Or, or, or there's frustration of, you know, I wasn't able to buy the gifts that I wanted to this year. You know, some of you, when you think of emotion, you are the bah humbug, can we get through tomorrow kind of people, all right? Listen to the podcast, the, the Christmas podcast episode that Dan and I recorded on our podcast. You know, he's Grumpy Cat, I'm like Mr. Happy Man, and we just talk about Christmas for 30 minutes. And just, just the, all of us approach Christmas differently. You know, some of you might even, when you think about the emotion you're feeling right now, you're getting ready to celebrate Christmas for the first time without someone that's no longer here. You see, all of us bring our emotions in this room when it comes to Christmas. And the emotion that I hope that we have is the emotion that Mary has right now. Because the reality of Jesus' birth, the, the announcement of the coming Messiah, it did something to her. It, it moved her enough to write a song. And this is the song. It starts like this. I want you to see this in verse 46 and 47. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Right there, Mary is letting us know. She is, there's, there's joy, there's worship in her heart as a result of the reality of what, has, what is going to transpire inside of her and around her. This coming of the Messiah, the birth, the announcement of Jesus. And that's really what I, I hope to leave you. That's my challenge this morning. That we in this room, as we think about the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the, the death of Jesus, that it produces in us a sense of worship and joy. In fact, that's the main idea I want to leave you with this morning. Is that the birth of Jesus gives us a reason to worship and rejoice. Jesus' birth gives us a reason to worship and rejoice. Listen, you might have some legitimate reasons this morning to be frustrated. You might have some legitimate reasons to be sad. But there's something bigger in our lives. There's something bigger in the universe. There's something bigger in the world. What's happening right now? And his name is Jesus. And that should draw us, no matter where we are at and how we feel about Christmas or feel about tomorrow, that we should respond with a sense of worship and joy. That's my prayer for you this morning. That's my hope for you this morning. Is that we walk out of these doors in just a, a few minutes with a sense of worship and joy.
So, so why was Mary, why does she have this sense of worship and joy? Notice the last thing she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, why would she use that word Savior? It's because we're going to look at this, the story in fuller detail. But when Gabriel the angel announces to Mary, you're going to have a son and he shall call his name Jesus. The name of Jesus in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew version of Jesus is Yeshua. And that means the Lord is salvation or Yahweh saves. So what she is recognizing here is the Messiah is coming. He is a savior. There's a, there's a salvific reality of Jesus' coming that, that she is responding to. And so, so the first thing I want us to see is the first uh, in verses 48 and 49 is the first reason why Mary has reason to worship and rejoice. Let's read it. Uh, It says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What do you notice about Mary's initial reaction to the joy and the worship? What is she saying? She's saying she's making it personal. And that's the first point. Jesus is a personal Savior. If her heart is rejoicing and magnifying in God, her Savior, what she's saying is, God, you're a Savior to me. Notice again what she says there. All generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. See, Mary had, she had grown up her entire life hearing about a coming Messiah. She had gone to synagogue. She had heard the the Old Testament prophecies and the promises. She knew all about the things that God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. She knew all of that stuff. But all of a sudden, something happened. Something transformed the general knowledge that she had about God and the promises and the word and the Messiah to now she was singing. What was it? Well, I want us to read it. It's a little bit long of a text, but it's the story of how Mary finds out about how she's going to give birth to Messiah. It's in verse 26. We're going to have the verses on the screen. But listen to what, listen how the story goes. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's, the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, you might be wondering, like, all of us, when we think about an angel appearing to us, we're like, oh, I would love to see an angel. No, you don't. Every, most of the time when people see angels in the Bible, they're like, ah, ah, and they're like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Okay? Now, if she knows the story, if she knows the word, she knows when an angel shows up to give someone news, it's pretty important. It's life-changing for most of these people. And so when an angel shows up and says, hey, I've got a message to God, from God to you, and she's like, whoa, wait a second, what does this mean? So you understand the emotion she's feeling in this moment. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be a great He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, 
there will be no end. She is now getting the, the real word announcement. You are going to have a son. You're going to bear a child, and it shall be the Messiah. All those things, Mary, that you had learned about from synagogue, all the promises of the Old Testament, it's happening. It's happening now. It's happening in you. That this was life-changing for her. Look at how she responds, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Literally in the Greek it means I've never known a man sexually. Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Whoa. She is like, okay, I've never known a man. How am I going to have a child? And she's like, the Holy Spirit's going to miraculously conceive a child inside of you. And this is going to, and you're going to bear a child. He will be called the Son of God. And your, your, your cousin, Elizabeth, who you love, you know, she's actually going to have a child. Nothing is impossible for God. The, this now, the stories of all the Old Testament, the stories of the, the Red Sea parting, the stories of manna falling from heaven, the stories of David killing, all of these stories she has heard, she's now saying, it's happening to me. The supernatural God of heaven and earth is now coming and doing something inside of me. See, there, there comes a point in all of our lives when the general knowledge of God the general knowledge about Jesus has to become personal and real to you. See, you can, you can have an understanding, yet yeah, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus, Jesus you know, died on the cross for the sins of the world, but he did, yeah, he did that for the world. He, he is the Savior of the world, but he's also your Savior. He can be yours. When he went to the cross, he went to the cross for your sins. There's something that has to transpire in our hearts and our minds to make the general knowledge about Jesus the personal knowledge about Jesus. About 23 years ago, uh, we had a very memorable Christmas. In October of 2000, uh, my wife and I found out we were having our first child, which is you know joy and excitement and anticipation. I'm the kind of person, man, I just want to tell everyone. My wife was like, no, we're not telling anyone for six months. And I'm like... That's, first of all, it's impossible. But second of all, you know, we got to tell someone. I mean, so, so we like debate. I finally convinced her to tell, to announce it to my, to my family, my parents, on Christmas morning. And so what we did was we, uh, we wrapped up, we, we took a little ultrasound picture and we put it in a frame. And on the, we said, you know, you're going to be grandparents in, in, uh, in eight months or whatever it was. And uh, so, you know, Christmas, I just, I was so excited for that morning. Christmas of 2000, and every, we woke up that morning, we all opened up presents, and finally I had one last gift to give, and I, and I, I gave them this little box, that, and my parents, they opened up the, the, pa the, the package, and they looked at it, and it was just like, it was that Kodak moment, like the, the, the face of surprise, of joy, tears, I mean, it was just like, it was such an exuberant time of, of joy and gladness, and it was, it was just an amazing moment. And the reason why that moment became so special, it is special, is because here's, here's what my parents knew. My parents knew, you know, I was the first one to get married. They, were gonna, they knew that at some point they were going to be grandparents. But now it became real. That's the child. That's the ultrasound. And the feelings of anticipation of what you can think of, 
yeah, I, I'm going to be happy to be a grandparent someday. All of a sudden was, I am, I am a grandparent. And that is how much more does Jesus want to do that for us? Jesus loves you. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross for your sins. He, he went there, to, he, he thought of your shame, your condemnation. You see, if we're going to, if we're going to truly worship and respond to Jesus the way that he deserves to be worshiped and responded to, he's got to be personal. Is he personal to you? Is he a personal savior to you? And for Mary, there was a moment where the general knowledge about God, about the Messiah, was now, it was real. And unless it's real to you, the songs that we sing during the Christmas season, the songs we sing at church are just simply, let's get through it. But when it becomes real, when it becomes personal, when we understand the depth of God's love for us, then it changes everything. That's number one. Jesus is a personal Savior. Number two, Jesus is a powerful Savior. Jesus is a powerful Savior. Look at what she writes later on in verse 50 through 53. It says, And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. What do you notice about the next section of her song? First, she starts singing, my soul is magnifying, I'm worshiping, I'm, I'm, I'm rejoicing in God my Savior. What is so special about the Savior? Well, he's real to me. He has seen me. He understands what I'm going through, and he has done something for me. But now she shifts from the personal to the corporate, and she starts talking about the, the salvation of God for all mankind. And notice what she says, who, who the Messiah is for, who Messiah came to save. She uses verbiage. Notice, again, what she says about the people that, she, that God is against. It says in verse 51, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Look down in the end of verse 53, In the rich he has sent away empty. Who are the people that don't get the Messiah? The proud, the mighty, and the rich. You see, what Mary is saying in this psalm is that the world's way, the world's system, the world's way of, of how we operate, you're going to miss Jesus. Jesus is for the humble, he's for the hungry, he's for the poor. Notice again what she says there in the end of verse 52 and the beginning of verse 53. And he has exalted those of humble estate, and he has filled the hungry with good things. She juxtaposes the proud, the mighty, and the rich with the humble and the hungry. And she says, these people over here, they're the ones who discover Jesus. They're the ones who get the Messiah. This wasn't just Mary's, I think the reason why this song is in here, this is one of the themes of Luke's gospel. Luke, throughout his gospel, is going to show that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is an upside-down kingdom. It is to upend the world's order of doing things, making sure that it's not about how you overcome people and how you make your name for yourself, how you become great. In fact, in most of the parables and the stories, the people that, that, that Jesus speaks against and the people who don't get Jesus, they're the rich, the powerful, and the religious. The rich, the powerful, and the religious don't understand the kingdom of Jesus. 
And it's the poor and the tax collectors and the prostitutes that do get Jesus. Throughout the stories of Luke, even think about, think about the parable of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector that go to the temple to pray. Everyone's anticipating, well, we know who the good guy is, the Pharisee, the religious leader. Nope, not in Jesus' story. The Pharisee talks about how great he is. The, the tax collector beats his chest, looks down, says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went away righteous. The parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a man who's on a, on a journey. He gets beat up, left for dead. The religious people walk by on the other side of the road. Who stops by to help the Samaritan or help the, the, the traveler, the Samaritan, the outcast, the cultural person who no one wants to be around? See, Jesus was showing there's an upside-down world. Even think about the, this story in Luke chapter 1. We didn't have time to read it. But before Gabriel's announcement to Mary, he makes, Gabriel makes an announcement to Zechariah. Zechariah is an older priest who's serving at the temple. And Gabriel appears to him and says, you are going to have a child, you and your wife, and they will be the forerunner for the Messiah. And, and Zechariah's like, how can this be? We are, I'm an old man. Now, now think about it. You have two stories back to back. Zechariah and Mary, they both have announcements given to them by angels, Okay. Now, who do you think would be able to have the faith and the trust to believe that nothing is impossible for God? Would it, would, should it be the older, wiser priest, or is it the young, poor, teenage girl? Who gets it? Who understands it? Well, in these stories, when, when Zechariah's like, how can this be? I'm old. His how is doubt. When Mary is announced to her, hey, you're going to have a son, and she's like, how is this going to happen because I've never been with a man? That's curiosity. And when Gabriel says, you are going to conceive a child with the Holy Spirit, you'll never know a man sexually, but you will have a child. She's like, okay. That's faith. That's faith. And what Luke is saying, what Mary is saying is, if you think you know it all, if you think you, it's, if you are, it's about your self-savior, self I can do it all on my own. I don't need God. I don't need religion. I don't need, I don't need, the Bible, I don't need Jesus, I don't need any of these things. You will miss having a powerful Savior. All of us, and the reason I say it is because every single one of us has something in our lives that we need help with. All of us do. I tend to, as a pastor, usually people come see me when they are at their, the end of their rope. They're at the end of saying, I don't know what else to do. I am I'm struggling with this. And, and chances are most people... Um, most of us in this room have issues of addiction at some level. I know I've struggled with them in my past. So, so, so when you think about addiction, it's, it's some kind of behavior that you cannot control. That you can, it's some behavior you can't say no to. And so whether this is a behavior in your past or it's in your present, all of us can say there's things in my life that have seemed out of control. The word addiction doesn't appear in Scripture, but you know what it does? Slavery. Romans 6 talks about us being slaves to sin, that we can't get out from the bondage of it. And, and what's interesting is, when it comes to the, the issues of addiction, you know, a lot of people have heard about the 12-step program. Have you heard about the 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous? Um, you know, you might not know this, but the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step program actually has Christian roots. Did you know that? There's actually different, a, a group of people um, it was called the Oxford Group, and it was started in the early 1900s. 
And it was birthed out of the Keswick movement in England, where a group of people started getting together and just saying, hey, we need to learn how to confess our sins and how to overcome our sins. And so there was just, they would start learning and sharing. A lot of what they were taught, a lot of the principles were based on the Beatitudes, the teachings of Jesus. And what was the first Beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, when Luke records the, the Beatitudes, you know what he says? Blessed are the poor. He doesn't add the in spirit in there. What, he is, what he's saying is you've got to understand how destitute you are to, to help yourself. If you, want to have, if you want to overcome your addiction, you have to recognize you can't do it on your own. In fact, the first step, the first step, step number one in the 12-step program is this. We admit that we are powerless over alcohol. All of us, all of us have sins in our lives. And the power of sin in our life, we cannot overcome. You can't overcome death. You can't overcome the curse that, that the sin has brought into your life. There's only one man who can, and his name is Jesus. And he has come to help the humble. The people that say, I need a savior. I'm broken. I've got addictions. Guess what? You're the one that Jesus came for. If you think you've got it all together and you don't really need God or don't need church, listen, guess what? You, you don't understand how, what you need. And you'll miss Jesus. But Jesus is a powerful Savior. And what, what, what Mary is recognizing is Jesus has come to flip the world upside down. Where the powerful and the mighty and the proud and the rich are at the bottom of Jesus' world. And that's what he came to do. And that, so that leads us to our third reason for worship and joy, and that is this. Jesus is a perpetual Savior. Jesus is a personal Savior. He's a powerful Savior. He's also a perpetual Savior. Look at the last two verses here. She keeps magnifying this, this story. Again, she went from personal to corporate. Now she is going generational. She says, He has helped his servant Israel in, in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. See, what Mary was saying with this was, I know the story that in this moment of the Messiah coming, this is a fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Abraham. The promises that God gave to Abraham, I'm not sure if you remember, if you were here for our Galatians series, but the promise to Abraham was, I'm going to bless the world through you. And so, she, she's now recognizing, she's looking back. She's saying, from where she is, for 1,800 years in the past, she's saying, I have seen your merciful faithfulness. You're remembering us over and over again. No matter how many times the people of God, no matter how many times Israel walked away from God, rebelled, sinned, did their own thing, God would always bring them back. And she was saying, God, you're so faithful. Right now, she's living in a world where she is, they are ruled, the people of God, the Jewish people are ruled by Rome, a pagan nation with a pagan culture. And they have no way of understanding how are we going to get out from under the might of Rome? And she is now understanding God's fulfilling his promises. He was, he was a savior to Abraham, and he's a savior for me. He's going to be a savior for God's people for eternity. Now, one of the things that Mary didn't know, now there's a song about that, Mary Did You Know. 
I'm not sure if you've ever heard that song. It was about 30 years old, and, and we sing it occasionally at church. But um, there's a song called Mary, Did You Know? And it's all about, do you understand that, what he came to do and to die? But one thing that I don't believe that Mary knew was that the Messiah was coming not just to be the Messiah for the Jews. That, that Jesus came to be the Messiah of all people, of all nations. See, that's what, that's what Mary didn't get. She, yeah, she saw that he was, that, that you spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. But she, more than that, Jesus came to be a savior for all of us. And that's exactly what he accomplished on the cross. He didn't just die for the sins of the Jewish people. He came to die for the sins of all humanity. Why does that matter? That matters because as she could look back 1,800 years we can look back even further. We can look back 2,000 years and beyond. We can, we've, we've got a biblical record here of thousands of years of God's faithfulness. God fulfilling his promises. And the reason why that is so important for us today is that you and I need to make sure that we never lose hope in the moment of our lives. There are going to be things that we go through that are going to be hard. They're going to be difficult. And, just, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts um, I'm a podcast guy. I like when I commute back and forth to work from Denver to, to Cornelius every day. I just, I, it's about 25 minutes. Sometimes more traffic is 40 minutes, but I love listening to podcasts. I listen to sports podcasts. I listen to news podcasts. And I like listening to a variety of news podcasts. I like listening to the people on the left. I like listening to people on the right. And if you can find any, sometimes I like finding people in the middle. And, and I, I, the reason I like that is because I like to hear what other people are saying. I like to hear perspectives. And here's what everyone is saying. Here's what people on the left are saying. Here's what people on the right are saying. 2024 is going to be an ugly, nasty year. It's going to be, it's going to be we're going to see people do wicked things. We're going to people do underhanded things. There are people are going to lie and cheat and steal and try to get this election. And why is this election so important? Because everyone who's in the political realm will say, this is the most important election of our lives. And we're going to be like, oh no, it's the most important election of our lives. And just wait in two years, they'll say it again. And two more years, in four years, they'll say it again. They'll say it for the rest of your life. The next election is the most important election of your life. Now, why, why do people say that? People say that only if their world and their kingdom is here. People only say that if, if their savior and their kingdom is about who's in power now. And they, they see a very earthly kingdom See, what Jesus came to do was, was not just to change the world. He came, here and now, yes, but in the future as well. We're talking eternal life. We're talking heaven come to earth. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do more than just, hey, I want to fix your problems. Jesus came to transform humanity, to transform history. And what you and I have to remember is that you and I are going to face dark times next year. There's going to be times we will have loss, we will have pain, we will have suffering, we will have disappointments. But like Mary ends her song, we can remember God is faithful and he is a savior. He, he's a savior now, he'll be a savior tomorrow, and he'll always be a savior for this world. That's what we have to remember. That's what we have to hold on to. He is a perpetual savior. I don't care how dark things get for you. Jesus always saves. It's who he is. 
If you turn to him in the depths of where you are, he will meet you where you are. Some of you have people in your lives that are so far from God right now. And what you need to do is believe that God can save them and pray for them. This is what Jesus came to do. And I hope that we as the people of Jesus will respond in this way. That we will respond in worship and joy. That there's something bigger going on than in your life right now. And his name is Jesus. Two questions and then we're done. Number one. First question is this, is Jesus your Savior? Remember I talked about Jesus is a personal Savior. He's a powerful Savior. And unless you have, have made that decision for yourself, is Jesus, do you have just general knowledge about God, general knowledge about Jesus, general knowledge about the Bible? Or is the reality of Jesus' salvation personal and real to you? Have you personally received Jesus as your Have you given him your life? Have you put your faith and trust in him completely and totally? Because you can say, I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, but can you say Jesus is my Savior? If you can't say that, I want to invite you to do that today. You can do that sitting in your seat, saying, Jesus, I'm ready to give it all to you. Maybe you have questions and you talk to someone about what it means to have Jesus as your personal Savior. And if you do, come talk to me afterwards. Go, we have a prayer team out in the lobby that, that would love to talk with you, to help you make sure that you know Jesus as your Savior. Second question is this. How will, you, how will you respond in worship and joy this week? How will you respond in worship and joy this week? Here, here's the reality. It's Christmas Eve. Tomorrow, either tonight or tomorrow, something's going to go wrong. I'm just telling you right now. Okay, you're going to spill something. Um, someone's going to show up that you didn't want to show up. Um, you know, a kid's going to get a gift and they're going to cry. You ever, you ever have that? You know, you give them a gift and you're like, ah, and like, why are you crying? You know, something bad's going to happen. Something you don't expect. And if you allow the moment, those momentary issues to, to just captivate your emotions, You'll miss this. we got to have a wide-angle view of life, a wide-angle view of our lives, and understand that Jesus is a good Savior. And in the midst of all the hubbub and the hustle and the bustle and the packages and gifts and all these things, Jesus came to save souls. Jesus came to save you. And if nothing else, you can rest and the reality that Jesus, Jesus saved you. He's given you his salvation, and you have the hope of eternity in your hands. And that should give us reason to hope, to worship, and to rejoice. What we're going to do right now is we're going to turn our, our, our service to communion, to the Lord's Supper. I can't think of a better way to end our, our Christmas Eve service than remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. The elders are going to come at this moment, and they're going to pass out the elements of the bread and the cup. At Life Fellowship, what we believe about the Lord's Supper and about communion, we believe that communion is, a, is an act of worship. It's, it's a time of remembrance. We do not believe that this is, a, uh, this is a spiritual act that saves you, that gives you salvation. We don't believe that communion or the Lord's Supper uh, makes God like you more, that it does anything to absolve us of, of our sins. We believe that the fullness of what, 
of, of salvation was accomplished through Jesus on the cross. But what these elements do give to us is they give to us a symbol of the salvation that Jesus came to provide for us. So we, we believe this is a remembrance. This is, we believe that the communion is a memorial. The second thing we believe is that this act of worship is for those who are followers of Jesus. For those who can't say, Jesus is my personal Savior. If you've not made a personal commitment to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would just say, pass the plate. This isn't for you. This is a time for us to reflect and remember about what we talked about this morning. Jesus came to, to, to live the perfect life that we could not live. He, came, he went to the cross to take on your suffering, to take on your sin, to take on your shame, to bear the condemnation of the curse of sin, to pay the penalty that you deserve so that you might have his righteousness. And he went to the after his death, he went to the grave, and in that grave he was for three days, but he rose again from, from the grave, giving us all the chance to overcome our greatest enemies, sin and death. This is a time of worship. This is a time of remembrance. So what I'd like to ask you to do right now is to reflect on that. Reflect on the Savior that we talked about this morning. Reflect on the personal side of Jesus. Reflect on the powerful side of Jesus. And just spend some time, bow your heads, close your eyes, and meditate for the next minute on the reality of Jesus' salvation for you. Would you do that? Jesus, I think about Mary's words. And Lord, we, we sit here this morning humble and hungry, knowing that we could never save ourselves. But you provided the way, you provided the opportunity and the path for us to be made new and to be made whole with God. So God, we are grateful this, this morning for that. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the blood that you spilled. Lord, I pray that, that we would take these elements with a spirit of worship and joy as Mary proclaimed. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. May that be the song of our hearts today and, and, and throughout this week. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. These elements are symbols. And the bread, the wafer, represents the body of Jesus. And the reason why Jesus wants us to remember his body is because he was our substitute. The suffering and the pain that he experienced and his physical body was to, was to get, show us was, there's nothing he was willing to hold back to, in order to save us. But he took our place. And so when we partake of the bread, it's to remember Jesus instead of me. 
And, and the cup is a symbol of the blood of Christ. You know, in the Old Testament sacrifices, there was a, there was a, the blood represented that the shedding of sins, that the payment of, of, do, of wrongdoing, but also represented purification. That, that the blood of Jesus Christ wipes away our sins. And so when we partake of these elements, we remember the substitute that Jesus was for us. And we remember that his blood paid the penalty for our sins and wipes us clean and purifies our souls before him. So let us partake of this. When Jesus passed the bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do in remembrance of me. Let us partake. Next, he took the cup. He passed his disciples and said, this is the new covenant, my blood. Do in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Jesus, we, we end our service here this morning. Lord, praying that, that you would lead us out these doors with with a heart and with a soul full of Jesus as our Savior. Lord, if anyone sitting here this morning does not know you as their personal Savior, Lord, I pray that they would find you right here, right now. Draw them close to you. Lord, I pray for all of us. Maybe some of us have grown cold in our hearts about the reality of Jesus being our Savior. And Lord, I just pray that you would renew, renew us. Give us a sense of joy and wonder and worship and hope that we need to have this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.